Section 21 of Our Old Home. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Old Home by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Section 21. Outside Glimpses of English Poverty. After making myself as familiar as I decently could with the poor streets, I became curious to see what kind of a home was provided for the inhabitants at the public expense, fearing that it must needs be a most comfortless one, or else their choice, if choice it were, of so miserable a life outside was truly difficult to account for. Accordingly I visited a great almshouse, and was glad to observe how unexceptionably all the parts of the establishment were carried on, and what an orderly life, full-fed, sufficiently reposeful, and undisturbed by the arbitrary exercise of authority, seemed to be led there. Possibly, indeed, it was that very orderliness, and the cruel necessity of being neat and clean, and even the comfort resulting from these and other Christian-like restraints and regulations, that constituted the principal grievance on the part of the poor, shiftless inmates, accustomed to a lifelong luxury of dirt and harem-scarumness. The wild life of the streets has, perhaps, as unforgettable a charm to those who have once thoroughly imbibed it, as the life of the forest or the prairie. But I conceive, rather, that there must be insuperable difficulties for the majority of the poor, in the way of getting admittance to the almshouse, than that a merely aesthetic preference for the street would incline the pauper class to fare scantily and precariously, and expose their raggedness to the rain and snow, when such a hospitable door stood wide open for their entrance. It might be that the roughest and darkest side of the matter was not shown me, there being persons of eminent station, and of both sexes in the party which I accompanied, and, of course, a properly trained public functionary would have deemed it a monstrous rudeness, as well as a great shame, to exhibit anything to people of rank that might too painfully shock their sensibilities. The women's ward was the portion of the establishment which we especially examined. It could not be questioned that they were treated with kindness as well as care. No doubt, as has been already suggested, some of them felt the irksomeness of submission to general rules of orderly behavior, after being accustomed to that perfect freedom from the minor proprieties, at least, which is one of the compensations of absolutely hopeless poverty, or of any circumstances that set us fairly below the decencies of life. I asked the governor of the house whether he met with any difficulty in keeping peace and order among his inmates, and he informed me that his troubles among the women were incomparably greater than with the men. They were freakish, and apt to be quarrelsome, inclined to plague and pester one another in ways that it was impossible to lay hold of, and to thwart his own authority by the like intangible methods. He said this with the utmost good nature, and quite won my regard by so placidly resigning himself to the inevitable necessity of letting the women throw dust into his eyes. They certainly looked peaceable and sisterly enough as I saw them, though still it might be faintly perceptible that some of them were consciously playing their parts before the governor and his distinguished visitors. This governor seemed to me a man thoroughly fit for his position. An American, in an office of similar responsibility, would doubtless be a much superior person, better educated, 
possessing a far wider range of thought, more naturally acute, with a quicker tact of external observation, and a readier faculty of dealing with difficult cases. The women would not succeed in throwing half so much dust into his eyes. Moreover, his black coat and thin, sallow visage would make him look like a scholar, and his manners would indefinitely approximate to those of a gentleman. But I cannot help questioning whether, on the whole, these higher endowments would produce decidedly better results. The Englishman was thoroughly plebeian both in aspect and behavior, a bluff, ruddy-faced, hardy, kindly, yeoman-like personage, with no refinement whatever, nor any superfluous sensibility, but gifted with a native wholesomeness of character which must have been a very beneficial element in the atmosphere of the almshouse. He spoke to his pauper family in loud, good-humored, cheerful tones, and treated them with a healthy freedom that probably caused the forlorn wretches to feel as if they were free and healthy likewise. If he had understood them a little better, he would not have treated them half so wisely. We are apt to make sickly people more morbid, and unfortunate people more miserable, by endeavoring to adapt our deportment to their especial and individual needs. They eagerly accept our well-meant efforts, but it is like returning their own sick breath back upon themselves to be breathed over and over again, intensifying the inward mischief at every repetition. The sympathy that would really do them good is of a kind that recognizes their sound and healthy parts, and ignores the part affected by disease, which will thrive under the eye of a too close observer, like a poisonous weed in the sunshine. My good friend the governor had no tendencies in the latter direction, and abundance of them in the former, and was consequently as wholesome and invigorating as the west wind, with the little spice of the north in it brightening the dreary visages that encountered us as if he had carried a sunbeam in his hand. He expressed himself by his whole being and personality, and by works more than words, and had not the unusual English merit of knowing what to do much better than how to talk about it. The women, I imagine, must have felt one imperfection in their state, however comfortable otherwise. They were forbidden, or at all events lacked the means, to follow out their natural instinct of adorning themselves. All were dressed in one homely uniform of blue-checked gowns, with such caps upon their heads as English servants wear. Generally, too, they had one dowdy English aspect, and a vulgar type of features so nearly alike that they seemed literally to constitute a sisterhood. We have few of these absolutely unilluminated faces among our native American population, individuals of whom must be singularly unfortunate if, mixing as we do, no drop of gentle blood has contributed to refine the turbid element, no gleam of hereditary intelligence has lighted up the stolid eyes which their forefathers brought from the old country. Even in this English almshouse, however, there was at least one person who claimed to be intimately connected with rank and wealth. The governor, after suggesting that this person would probably be gratified by our visit, ushered us into a small parlor, which was furnished a little more like a room in a private dwelling than others that we entered, and had a row of religious books and fashionable novels on the mantelpiece. 
An old lady sat at a bright coal-fire, reading a romance, and rose to receive us with a certain pomp of manner and elaborate display of ceremonious courtesy, which, in spite of myself, made me inwardly question the genuineness of her aristocratic pretensions. But, at any rate, she looked like a respectable old soul, and was evidently gladdened to the very core of her frost-bitten heart by the awful punctiliousness with which she responded to her gracious and hospitable, though unfamiliar, welcome. After a little polite conversation we retired, and the governor, with a lowered voice and an air of deference, told us that she had been a lady of quality, and had ridden in her own equipage not many years before, and now lived in continual expectation that some of her rich relatives would drive up in their carriages to take her away. Meanwhile, he added, she was treated with great respect by her fellow paupers. I could not help thinking, from a few criticizable peculiarities in her talk and manner, that there might have been a mistake on the governor's part, and perhaps a venial exaggeration on the old lady's concerning her former position in society. But what struck me was the forcible instance of that most prevalent of English vanities, the pretension to aristocratic connection on one side, and the submission and reverence with which it was accepted by the governor and his household on the other. Among ourselves, I think, when wealth and eminent position have taken their departure, they seldom leave a pallid ghost behind them, or, if it sometimes stalks abroad, few recognize it. We went into several other rooms, at the doors of which, pausing on the outside, we could hear the volubility and sometimes the wrangling of the female inhabitants within, but invariably found silence and peace when we stepped over the threshold. The women were grouped together in their sitting-rooms, sometimes three or four, sometimes a larger number, classified by their spontaneous affinities, I suppose, and all busied, so far as I can remember, with the one occupation of knitting coarse yarn stockings. Hardly any of them, I am sorry to say, had a brisk or cheerful air, though it often stirred them up to a momentary vivacity to be accosted by the governor, and they seemed to like being noticed, however slightly, by the visitors. The happiest person whom I saw there, and, running hastily through my experiences, I hardly recollect to have seen a happier one in my life, if you take a careless flow of spirits as happiness, was an old woman that lay in bed among ten or twelve heavy-looking females, who plied their knitting work round about her. She laughed when we entered, and immediately began to talk to us, in a thin, little, spirited quaver, claiming to be more than a century old, and the governor, in whatever way he happened to be cognizant of the fact, confirmed her age to be a hundred and four. Her jauntiness and cackling merriment were really wonderful. It was as if she had got through with all her actual business in life two or three generations ago, and now, freed from every responsibility for herself or others, had only to keep up a mirthful state of mind till the short time, or long time, and, happy as she was, she appeared not to care whether it were long or short, before death, who had misplaced her name on his list, might remember to take her away. She had gone quite round the circle of human existence, and come back to the playground again. 
and so she had grown to be a kind of miraculous old pet, the plaything of people seventy or eighty years younger than herself, who talked and laughed with her as if she were a child, finding great delight in her wayward and strangely playful responses, into some of which she cunningly conveyed a jibe that caused their ears to tingle a little. She had done getting out of bed in this world, and lay there to be waited upon like a queen or a baby. In the same room sat a pauper, who had once been an actress of considerable repute, but was compelled to give up her profession by a softening of the brain. The disease seemed to have stolen the continuity out of her life, and disturbed a healthy relationship between the thoughts within her and the world without. On our first entrance she looked cheerfully at us, and showed herself ready to engage in conversation, but suddenly, while we were talking with the century-old crone, the poor actress began to weep, contorting her face with extravagant stage grimaces, and wringing her hands for some inscrutable sorrow. It might have been a reminiscence of actual calamity in her past life, or, quite as probably, it was but a dramatic woe, beneath which she had staggered and shrieked and wrung her hands with hundreds of repetitions in the sight of crowded theatres, and been as often comforted by thunders of applause. But my idea of the mystery was that she had a sense of wrong in seeing the aged woman, whose empty vivacity was like the rattling of dry peas in a bladder, chosen as the central object of interest to the visitors, while she herself, who had agitated thousands of hearts with a breath, sat starving for the admiration that was her natural food. I appeal to the whole society of artists of the beautiful and the imaginative, poets, romancers, painters, sculptors, actors, whether or no this is a grief that may be felt even amid the torpor of a dissolving brain. We looked into a good many sleeping chambers, where were rows of beds, mostly calculated for two occupants, and provided with sheets and pillowcases that resembled sackcloth. It appeared to me that the sense of beauty was insufficiently regarded in all the arrangements of the almshouse. A little cheap luxury for the eye, at least, might do the poor folks a substantial good. But, at all events, there was the beauty of perfect neatness and orderliness, which, being heretofore known to few of them, was perhaps as much as they could well digest in the remnant of their lives. We were invited into the laundry, where a great washing and drying were in process, the whole atmosphere being hot and vaporous with the steam of wet garments and bedclothes. This atmosphere was the pauper life of the past week or fortnight, resolved into a gaseous state, and breathing it, however fastidiously, we were forced to inhale the strange element into our inmost being. Had the queen been there, I know not how she could have escaped the necessity. What an intimate brotherhood is this in which we dwell, do what we may to put an artificial remoteness between the high creature and the low one. A poor man's breath, borne on the vehicle of tobacco smoke, floats into a palace window, and reaches the nostrils of a monarch. It is but an example, obvious to the sense, of the innumerable and secret channels by which, at every moment of our lives, the flow and reflux of a common humanity pervade us all. 
how superficial are the niceties of such as pretend to keep aloof. Let the whole world be cleansed, or not a man or woman of us all can be clean. By and by we came to the ward where the children were kept, on entering which we saw, in the first place, several unlovely and unwholesome little people lazily playing together in a courtyard. And here a singular incommodity befell one member of our party. Among the children was a wretched, pale, half-torpid little thing, about six years old, perhaps, but I know not whether a girl or a boy, with a humor in its eyes and face, which the governor said was the scurvy, and which appeared to be dim its powers of vision, so that it toddled about gropingly, as if in quest of it did not precisely know what. This child, this sickly, wretched, humor-eaten infant, the offspring of unspeakable sin and sorrow, whom it must have required several generations of guilty progenitors to render so pitiable an object as we beheld it, immediately took an unaccountable fancy to the gentleman just hinted at. It prowled about him like a pet kitten, rubbing against his legs, following everywhere at his heels, pulling at his coat-tails, and, at last, exerting all the speed that its poor limbs were capable of, got directly before him and held forth its arms, mutely insisting on being taken up. It said not a word, being perhaps underwitted and incapable of prattle, but it smiled up in his face, a sort of woeful gleam was that smile, through the sickly blotches that covered its features, and found means to express such a perfect confidence that it was going to be fondled and made much of, that there was no possibility in a human heart of balking its expectation. It was as if God had promised the poor child this favor on behalf of that individual, and he was bound to fulfill the contract, or else no longer call himself a man among men. Nevertheless, it could be no easy thing for him to do, for being a person burdened with more than an Englishman's customary reserve, shy of actual contact with human beings, afflicted with a peculiar distaste for whatever was ugly, and, furthermore, accustomed to that habit of observation from an insulated standpoint which is said, but I hope erroneously, to have the tendency of putting ice into the blood. So I watched the struggle in his mind with a good deal of interest, and am seriously of opinion that he did a heroic act, and affected more than he dreamed of towards his final salvation, when he took up the loathsome child, and caressed it as tenderly as if he had been its father. To be sure, we all smiled at him at the time, but doubtless would have acted pretty much the same in a similar stress of circumstances. The child, at any rate, appeared to be satisfied with his behavior, for when he had held it a considerable time and set it down, it still favored him with its company, keeping fast hold of his forefinger till we reached the confines of the place. And on our return through the courtyard, after visiting another part of the establishment, here again was this same little wretchedness waiting for its victim, with a smile of joyful and yet dull recognition about its scabby mouth and in its roomy eyes. No doubt the child's mission in reference to our friend was to remind him that he was responsible in his degree for all the sufferings and misdemeanors of the world in which he lived, 
and was not entitled to look upon a particle of its dark calamity as if it were none of his concern. The offspring of a brother's iniquity being his own blood relation, and the guilt likewise a burden on him, unless he expiated it by better deeds. All the children in this ward seemed to be invalids, and going upstairs we found more of them in the same or a worse condition than the little creature just described, with their mothers, or more probably other women, for the infants were mostly foundlings, in attendance as nurses. The matron of the ward, a middle-aged woman, remarkably kind and motherly in aspect, was walking to and fro across the chamber, on that weary journey in which careful mothers and nurses travel so continually and so far, and gain never a step of progress, with an unquiet baby in her arms. She assured us that she enjoyed her occupation, being exceedingly fond of children, and, in fact, the absence of timidity in all the little people was a sufficient proof that they could have had no experience of harsh treatment, though, on the other hand, none of them appeared to be attracted to one individual more than another. In this point they differed widely from the poor child below stairs. They seemed to recognize a universal motherhood in womankind, and cared not which individual might be the mother of the moment. I found their tameness as shocking as did Alexander Selkirk, that of the brute subjects of his else solitary kingdom. It was a sort of tame familiarity, a perfect indifference to the approach of strangers, such as I never noticed in other children. I accounted for it partly by their nerveless, unstrung state of body, incapable of the quick thrills of delight and fear which play upon the lively harp-strings of a healthy child's nature, and partly by their woeful lack of acquaintance with a private home, and their being therefore destitute of the sweet home-bred shyness which is like the sanctity of heaven about a mother-petted child. Their condition was like that of chickens hatched in an oven, and growing up without the special guardianship of a matron hen. Both the chicken and the child, methinks, must needs want something that is essential to their respective characters. In this chamber, which was spacious, containing a large number of beds, there was a clear fire burning on the hearth, as in all the other occupied rooms, and directly in front of the blaze sat a woman holding a baby, which, beyond all reach of comparison, was the most horrible object that ever afflicted my sight. Days afterwards, nay, even now when I bring it up vividly before my mind's eye, it seemed to lie upon the floor of my heart, polluting my moral being with the sense of something grievously amiss in the entire conditions of humanity. The holiest man could not be otherwise than full of wickedness, the chastest virgin seem impure in a world where such a babe was possible. The governor whispered me apart that, like nearly all the rest of them, it was a child of unhealthy parents. Ah, yes, there was the mischief. This spectral infant, a hideous mockery of the visible link which love creates between man and woman, was born of disease and sin. Diseased sin was its father— and sinful disease its mother, and their offspring lay in the woman's arms like a nursing pestilence which, could it live and grow up, would make the world a more accursed abode than ever heretofore. 
Thank heaven it could not live. This baby, if we must give it that sweet name, seemed to be three or four months old, but, being such an unthriftly changeling, might have been considerably older. It was all covered with blotches, and preternaturally dark and discolored. It was withered away, quite shrunken and fleshless. It breathed only amid pantings and gaspings, and moaned painfully at every gasp. The only comfort in reference to it was the evident impossibility of its surviving to draw many more of those miserable, moaning breaths, and it would have been infinitely less heart-depressing to see it die, right before my eyes, than to depart and carry it alive in my remembrance, still suffering the incalculable torture of its little life. I can by no means express how horrible this infant was, neither ought I to attempt it. And yet I must add one final touch. Young as the poor little creature was, its pain and misery had endowed it with a premature intelligence, insomuch that its eyes seemed to stare at the bystanders out of their sunken sockets knowingly and appealingly, as if summoning us one and all to witness the deadly wrong of its existence. At least I so interpreted its look, when it positively met and responded to my own awe-stricken gaze, and therefore I lay the case, as far as I am able, before mankind, on whom God has imposed the necessity to suffer in soul and body, till this dark and dreadful wrong be righted. Thence we went to the schoolrooms, which were underneath the chapel. The pupils, like the children whom we had just seen, were, in large proportion, foundlings. Almost without exception they looked sickly, with marks of eruptive trouble in their doltish faces, and a general tendency to diseases of the eye. Moreover, the poor little wretches appeared to be uneasy within their skins, and screwed themselves about on the benches in a disagreeable, suggestive way, as if they had inherited the evil habits of their parents, as an innermost garment of the same texture and material as the shirt of Nessus, and must wear it with unspeakable discomfort as long as they lived. I saw only a single child that looked healthy, and on my pointing him out, the governor informed me that this little boy, the sole exception to the miserable aspect of his schoolfellows, was not a foundling, nor properly a workhouse child, being born of respectable parentage, and his father one of the officers of the institution. As for the remainder, the hundred pale abortions to be counted against one rosy-cheeked boy, what shall we say or do? Depressed by the sight of so much misery, and uninventive of remedies for the evils that force themselves, on my perception, I can do little more than recur to the idea already hinted at in the early part of this article, regarding the speedy necessity of a new deluge. So far as these children are concerned, at any rate, it would be a blessing to the human race, which they will contribute to enervate and corrupt, a greater blessing to themselves, who inherit no patrimony but disease and vice, and in whose souls, if there be a spark of God's life, this seems the only possible mode of keeping it aglow. If every one of them could be drowned to-night by their best friends, instead of being put tenderly to bed. 
this heroic method of treating human maladies, moral and material, is certainly beyond the scope of man's discretionary rights, and probably will not be adopted by divine providence until the opportunity of milder reformation shall have been offered us again and again through a series of future ages. It may be fair to acknowledge that the humane and excellent governor, as well as other persons better acquainted with the subject than myself, took a less gloomy view of it, though still so dark a one as to involve scanty consolation. They remarked that individuals of the male sex, picked up in the streets and nurtured in the workhouse, sometimes succeed tolerably well in life, because they are taught trades before being turned into the world, and by dint of immaculate behavior and good luck, are not unlikely to get employment and earn a livelihood. The case is different with the girls. They can only go to service, and are invariably rejected by families of respectability on account of their origin, and for the better reason of their unfitness to fill satisfactorily even the meanest situations in a well-ordered English household. Their resource is to take service with people only a step or two above the poorest class, with whom they fare scantily, endure harsh treatment, lead shifting and precarious lives, and finally drop into the slough of evil, through which, in their best estate, they do but pick their slimy way on stepping-stones. From the schools we went to the bake-house and the brew-house, for such cruelty is not harbored in the heart of a true Englishman as to deny a pauper his daily allowance of beer, and through the kitchens, where we beheld an immense pot over the fire, surging and walloping with some kind of a savory stew that filled up to its brim. We also visited a tailor's shop and a shoemaker's shop, in both of which a number of men and pale diminutive apprentices were at work, diligently enough, though seemingly with small heart in the business. Finally the governor ushered us into a shed, inside of which was piled up an immense quantity of new coffins. They were of the plainest description, made of pine boards, probably of American growth, not very nicely smoothed by the plane, neither painted nor stained with black, but provided with a loop of rope at either end for the convenience of lifting the rude box and its inmate into the cart that shall carry them to the burial ground. There, in holes ten feet deep, the paupers are buried one above another, mingling their relics indistinguishably. In another world may they resume their individuality and find it a happier one than here. As we departed, a character came under our notice which I have met with in all almshouses, whether of the city or village, in England or America. It was the familiar simpleton who shuffled across the courtyard, clattering in his wooden-soled shoes, to greet us with a howl or a laugh, I hardly know which, holding out his hand for a penny, and chuckling grossly when it was given him. All underwitted persons, so far as my experience goes, have this craving for copper coin, and appear to estimate its value by a miraculous instinct, which is one of the earliest gleams of human intelligence while the nobler faculties are yet in abeyance. There may come a time, even in this world, when we shall all understand that our tendency to the individual appropriation of gold and broad acres, fine houses, and such good and beautiful things, as are equally enjoyable by a multitude, 
is but a trait of imperfectly developed intelligence, like the simpleton's cupidity of a penny. When that day dawns, and probably not till then, I imagine that there will be no more poor streets, nor need of almshouses. I was once present at the wedding of some poor English people, and was deeply impressed by the spectacle, though by no means with such proud and delightful emotions as seemed to have affected all England on the recent occasion of the marriage of its prince. It was in the cathedral at Manchester, a particularly black and grim old structure, into which I had stepped to examine some ancient and curious wood-carvings within the choir. The woman in attendance greeted me with a smile, which always glimmers forth on the feminine visage, I know not why, when a wedding is in question, and asked me to take a seat in the nave till some poor parties were married, it being the Easter holidays, and a good time for them to marry, because no fees would be demanded by the clergyman. I sat down accordingly, and soon the parson and his clerk appeared at the altar, and a considerable crowd of people made their entrance at a side door, and ranged themselves in a long huddled line across the chancel. There were my acquaintances of the poor streets, or persons in a precisely similar condition of life, and were now come to their marriage ceremony in just such garbs as I had always seen them wear, the men in their loafers' coats, out at elbows, or their labourers' jackets, defaced with grimy toil, the women drawing their shabby shawls tighter about their shoulders, to hide the raggedness beneath, all of them unbrushed, unshaven, unwashed, uncombed, and wrinkled with penury and care, nothing virgin-like in the brides, nor hopeful or energetic in the bridegrooms. They were, in short, the mere rags and tatters of the human race, whom some east wind of evil omen, howling along the streets, had chanced to sweep together into an unfragrant heap. Each and all of them, conscious of his or her individual misery, had blundered into the strange miscalculation of supposing that they could lessen the sum of it by multiplying it into the misery of another person. All the couples, and it was difficult in such a confused crowd to compute exactly their number, stood up at once, and had execution done upon them in the lump, the clergyman addressing only small parts of the service to each individual pair, but so managing the larger portion as to include the whole company without the trouble of repetition. By this compendious contrivance one would apprehend, he came dangerously near making every man and woman the husband or wife of every other, nor, perhaps, would he have perpetrated much additional mischief by the mistake. But after receiving a benediction in common, they assorted themselves in their own fashion, as they only knew how, and departed to the garrets, or the cellars, or the unsheltered street corners, where their honeymoon and subsequent lives were to be spent. The parson smiled decorously, the clerk and sexton grinned broadly, the female attendant tittered almost aloud, and even the married parties seemed to see something exceedingly funny in the affair, but for my part, though generally apt enough to be tickled by a joke, I laid it away in my memory as one of the saddest sights ever looked upon. 
Not very long afterwards, I happened to be passing the same venerable cathedral, and heard a clang of joyful bells, and beheld a bridal party coming down the steps towards a carriage and four horses, with a portly coachman and two postilions that waited at the gate. One parson and one service had amalgamated the wretchedness of a score of paupers. A bishop and three or four clergymen had combined their spiritual might to forge the golden links of this other marriage bond. The bridegroom's mien had a sort of careless and kindly English pride. The bride floated along in her white drapery, a creature so nice and delicate that it was a luxury to see her, and a pity that her silk slippers should touch anything so grimy as the old stones of the churchyard avenue. The crowd of ragged people, who always cluster to witness what they may of an aristocratic wedding, broke into audible admiration of the bride's beauty and the bridegroom's manliness, and uttered prayers and ejaculations, possibly paid for in alms, for the happiness of both. If the most favorable of earthly conditions could make them happy, they had every prospect of it. They were going to live on their abundance in one of those stately and delightful English homes, such as no other people ever created or inherited, a hall set far and safe within its own private grounds, and surrounded with venerable trees, shaven lawns, rich shrubbery, and trimmest pathways, the whole so artfully contrived and tended that summer rendered it a paradise, and even winter would hardly disrobe it of its beauty, and all this fair property seemed more exclusively and inalienably their own, because of its descent through many forefathers, each of whom had added an improvement or a charm, and thus transmitted it with a stronger stamp of rightful possession to his heir. And is it possible, after all, that there may be a flaw in the title-deeds? Is, or is not, the system wrong, that gives one married pair so immense a superfluity of luxurious home, and shuts out a million others from any home whatever. One day or another, safe as they deem themselves, and safe as the hereditary temper of the people really tends to make them, the gentlemen of England will be compelled to face this question. End of section 21